0: The Radio Hour is a free weekly podcast of the Los Angeles Review of Books, a reader-supported nonprofit publication. To support our continued work on this show in print and online, please consider donating or joining as a member today at LAreviewofbooks.org/radiohour. Hello, and welcome to the LARV Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Kate Wolf, and I'm joined by my co-host, Eric Newman.
1: Hi, Kate.
0: Hi, Eric. And this week, we're listening to an interview that I did with the writer and art historian Prudence Pfeiffer about her new book, The Slip, the New York City street that changed American art forever.
1: Oh, which street is it? (laughs)
0: <laughs> it's a street called Coenti Slip, which is down, you know, near the financial district right on the water. It used to be a place where boats could come in like mm. in the seaport area and um, there were this row of buildings that were all former sail making factories. Um, oh yeah,
1: I actually vaguely know this area because my husband used to work on a tall ship down there at the seaport. Oh yeah, he's what? like a. I, <laughs> I guess you never talked about that. Yeah, he was like a he's a big sailor. He loves like sailing. He worked on the Pioneer, which is down there still there. It's one of the old I think it might be one of the oldest still active tall ships in the country. But anyways, TLDR. Wow. I, ha- I am familiar with this area, but I did not realize that it had changed the art world.
0: Yes, I had no idea that this area had been so integral to the history of post-war art in america yeah. and there there seems to have been a number of artists who lived nearby it was kind of like a version of soho you could say mm. because it was um you know not a typical area for artists to live the space that they were living in were not really meant to be residential Former commercial spaces, and in these buildings, you know, Ellsworth Kelly, Robert Indiana, Agnes Martin, James Rosenquist, Jack Youngerman, and his wife Delphine Sarig, who you know who that is, star of Chantal Ackerman movies, the star of Last Year at Marienbad, who became a, a very important filmmaker in her own right and a mm. feminist activist. So she was living there as well, and it was a brief period. But uh, Prudence's book really makes a case for the importance of the place for all of them, the kind of space that they all found there, the collective solitude that they found, being able to make their work, kind of being alone together. And it's a very inspiring book in that I think it really does make a case for how people affect each other, how artists, despite Mm. whatever rivalries I always think about as existing in the art world then and now, can come together and nurture each other. And also just giving the history of Manhattan at the same time. So it was a really moving book and great to read.
1: Yeah, I can only imagine what kind of insane, like, cultural foment it must have felt like at the time to have all of those, like, yes, we know they're kind of like after careers, but it's like to have them all working there at the same time, I'm sure was like quite a heady atmosphere. Well, you
0: always wonder if at the time, you know, people realize, you know, I feel like in cheesy documentaries, you always hear hear people say, and then I knew that this is going to be really important. Like I watched that one about uh, the yeah, yeah, yeah. And so we're talking about Karen O and saying like, then when I saw Karen O play, I knew this was going to change the course of rock and roll. Um,
1: (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So maybe it always has that tendency towards the cringe. I mean, I'm sure there are some, there
0: are some people who are thinking always in that, you know, posterity Mindset that maybe imagine that. But I think for a lot of yeah. people, when you're, you know, they were all very young at the time, it was just happenstance that they all came together. And then there's this way in which I think the, the book made me think about this in a way I never had before. It was happenstance that they came together, but there's the possibility that the reason that they're known now or their careers were successful was in part because they did come together. That if they hadn't all ended up together and influenced each other and helped each other, maybe they wouldn't have been the artists they ended up to be. And, and that's part of why I found the book very moving. Is we don't often think that way. It's like, oh, it was meant to be. This was such an amazing, you know, conglomeration of people, not like these people helped each other and that's why they're known. It wasn't just some, you know, artistic synergy. It was like there was care involved as well.
1: Well, speaking of, by the way, places where CARE is involved and in which people get together to collaborate for kind of creative production, um, it might be a good time for us to plug one of LARB's upcoming programs.
0: Oh, yeah, please.
1: Well, as you might know, Kate, but our listeners probably do not, we're right at the beginning of our second annual LARB Yefenoff Residency Contest for Emerging Translators. So this residency supports translators who are working on prose from any language, but who have not yet published a book-length work. So it's really targeted at people that are just starting out and kind of just getting underneath themselves. The winner receives support completing and polishing their translation of a short story, and that will be in consultation with one of my dearly beloveds, which is Boris Dralyuk, uh, who is LARB's former editor-in-chief and winner of the 2022 National Book Critics Circle, Greg Barrios Translation Prize. And they'll be working with Boris during a two-week stay at Yefenov in Lake Arrowhead, California at the end of this year. That winner will also then be invited to present their work in San Francisco at the Center of the Art of Translation. So for those of you who this sounds like it would be a great fit or a potentially amazing opportunity, applications are open now, but be sure to get your submission in before it all closes on September 15th. If you want more information, go to lareviewofbooksorg backslash events. Again, that's lareviewofbooksorg backslash events for the LARB Yefanoff Residency Contest for Emerging Translators.
0: Thank you, Eric, for that well-delivered plug. And uh, <laughs> I think the theme here is really time and space. Mm-hmm. We, all, we all need it to get things done, so. I exactly,
1: hope so. especially the creatives among us, absolutely. Yes,
0: yes. Okay, well, with that, let's listen to my interview with Prudence. Let's, let's do it. I'm glad to be speaking with the writer, editor, and art historian, Prudence Pfeiffer, today. Presently, she serves as the managing editor of the creative team at the Museum of Modern Art, in New York, and she's a former senior editor at Art Forum, where her writing frequently appears. She's also contributed to the New York Times, the New York Review of Books, and Book Forum, among other publications. She's with me to speak about her first book, The Slip, the New York City street that changed American art forever. The book is a group biography of a collection of luminous American artists, including Agnes Martin, Ellsworth Kelly, Robert Indiana, Lenore Taney, James Rosenquist, and Jack Youngerman, as well as his wife, the French actress, filmmaker, and feminist activist Delphine Sarig. From the late 1950s to the middle of the 1960s, all of them happened to live in the same place in a collection of former sailmaking warehouses on Coenties Slip, a dead-end street in one of the oldest sections of Manhattan, right next to the river. Rather than jostle their work into well-established art historical movements and categories, Pfeiffer's book asserts place as the generative frame from which to understand these artists and the connections and influence between them. Though the community was short-lived, their support of one another, the collective solitude they found, even though rivalry, takes shape as integral to their development and at least one of the reasons that their work survives today. Thank you so much, Prudence, for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm curious to start with where you learned about Quenti Slip and um this group of artists that all live there, how you learned about it and at what tipping point did it feel like it could be
2: a book? I mean, it's one of those unusual terms that kind of sticks in your head. And so I had heard it floating around for a while, but I think it was back in 2016 when we were putting together a tribute for Ellsworth Kelly at Art Forum magazine when he just passed away. And we had invited Robert Indiana to contribute something. And he sent in a photograph of he and Kelly riding bikes in downtown New York, right off of Quentin's lip on Wall Street. And I just remember thinking, wait, like, what? They were, you know, living in the same place and in this very early moment of both of their careers in New York and way downtown. And then, wait, Agnes Martin was there, too. And I didn't know much about Lenore Tawny at all, another of the artists who was there. So then Jack Youngerman. And so as I began to kind of piece together a little bit more about who was there, I became more and more intrigued because all of the artists were really doing very, very different things. So it was quite a motley crew. And then I also read Nancy Prinzenzal's great biography of Agnes Martin, which has a section on, on Quentin's slip in that time. And I just wanted to know more. I wanted to know more about all of the artists together, kind of collectively. I wanted to know more about this place and why was it called Quentin's slip and what had happened there. And there was, you know, some oblique references to the lofts that they were living in as being these former sailmaking lofts. And... There was just a lot of intriguing things about about it that I just wanted to know more about. And I think I just the more that I kind of started doing research and the more I had this wonderful kind of gift. I was connected to Jack Youngerman, who at the time was really one of the last surviving members of the core group of artists who lived on the slip. And We started having conversations in 2017, and sadly, he passed away in in February of 2020. But he was, over the years of our conversations, he was such a generous, he was so generous about his memories and about connecting with me with other people and just thinking through this time in his own life and what it meant for him. And the richness of those conversations really made me realize that there was a story here that was pretty deep and that had not been fully told at all yet. And that really connected to a lot of things around the history of New York, as well as art history that I hoped other readers might find interesting too.
0: Why was the slip so unique? I mean, besides this amazing collection of people that happened to all live there, but why was it unique for them to live there? What, what was it about the place that was different than where other artists were living at the time?
2: Yeah. So a slip as a geographic place is such an interesting kind of anomaly in a way and such a a nice metaphor also for the kind of moment when the artists were living there. So, you know, a slip is a, a place where ships and boats can come in and more at harbor between piers or wharves and I, you know, learned a lot that I didn't know about how really from the beginning of the 17th century and the settlement of the New York colony, there were immediately slips made. So there were 12 of them that were running up the lower sort of southern eastern tip of Manhattan from the Battery up to the Brooklyn Bridge. And Quenty slip was the deepest one. So it went kind of the farthest into the land. And at one point was also the busiest, really the central market of the city. So that was also fascinating to me that this place that at one point was the center of trade and had all of this kind of industry and really important ship and you know, truck traffic was also by the time that the artists were moving there in the 1950s, so obscure and sort of desolate that people didn't even know about it then. And the artist talked about sort of leaving Manhattan to go back to the Slip, even though, of course, it was still a part of Manhattan. So I really loved the idea of this place that was both of the water and the land. By the time the artist moved there, it had been filled in, so it was no longer a waterway. And it really was a street, but it still had so much of its maritime past standing. And at the very end of the street, right before the water, there was a hotel for sailors called the Siemens Church Institute that actually became a very important place for the artists to go and have hot showers and eat hot meals in the cafeteria. And they had a wonderful library and really amazing views of the water. But also the actual buildings that the artists occupied had been former sailmaking lofts and chandleries and shipping supply stores, and they were very, very cheap and not meant to be lived in. They were more for commercial use, but landlords kind of looked the other way since there was a great kind of opportunity in that so much industry had left downtown New York after World War II, and it was a fairly vacant stretch of Manhattan. And so there was real opportunity for the artists to to live there for very, very, very inexpensive and to live in much bigger apartments than they would find elsewhere in the city. So in a way too, it's kind of before the explosion of what we think of as almost like the cliched artist loft of Soho and Tribeca and all the kind of legislation and laws that allowed for artists to be in residence in those more commercial buildings. So this is a kind of slightly earlier moment when the artists are really in a very DIY way making their these spaces livable, but they're also studio spaces for them to be working.
0: Yeah, I love this idea of approaching this group of people just through place as the kind of foremost connection because it It seems that it's very material, that the material conditions that they experienced did probably shape their work and that they together shaped each other's work. It just makes sense and it seems very real as opposed to kind of more theoretical entrance points. But I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about place as the frame here, and especially for an art historian, is that like a radical entry? Is that, where are you like doing your discipline wrong? I mean, it seems so obvious in a lot of ways, but then again, it is definitely not how we are taken through art history. So talk about that decision.
2: I think, you know, in terms of Coventy Slip, because it was such a special and unique place, as we were just describing, both in terms of its geographic siting and its history. So already you have a sense of uniqueness that I, I think does sort of set apart what this place could be for these artists because it allowed them to literally be able to afford to live in New York. They all were coming from outside of New York City. And for all of them, they were a pretty big range in age from 24 to 50 years old. But it was really for all of them the start of their careers, regardless of their age. And so it was a real moment where they were able to Arrive at a place where they could afford to be there, they had the space to work, and then they had the space to also be themselves and kind of experiment and fail and not have too many distractions or, you know, a sense of lots of other things going on. But they also did have this community so that they could knock on their fellow artist's door right above or below them or next door to them and borrow canvas or borrow food or get help in some way ask advice look at each other's artworks and so they were you know influenced by what each was doing and you know as you mentioned in your introduction a kind of even sometimes rivalry of there's a wonderful moment when Robert Indiana who arrived at the slip actually as Robert Clark and while he's at the slip he kind of takes on this new name and this new really persona as an artist this great ambition and he was making these more abstract orbs on cheap particle board, actually, his wall. He tears down his wall because he can't afford canvas. And so he's making these orbs, paintings, and then he sees that Agnes Martin, his neighbor, is doing a whole series with circles and these sort of beautiful, geometric, pure grids. And he says, okay, I can't, I gotta move, I can't, I gotta do something else. And then, you know, he's working with these other sort of more organic abstraction, and he sees that Jack Youngerman when he came back from Paris, is working in that idiom. And it sort of forces Indiana to continue to develop his own art in a way that I think, you know, he might not have otherwise and to arrive at a place that really was original to what he was thinking about. To your point about place more literally, I did really love that, in part because of their financial circumstances, in part because of where they were. There wasn't a lot of art supply stores nearby, but... They did end up using so many materials that were right there in the neighborhood. So Indiana is picking up stencils from these old ship stationery stores and using them to make his first words and numbers in his paintings and going out and finding these incredible wood beams that used to be columns in the buildings, the 19th century buildings that were being demolished due to the incredible rapid rate of development that was happening throughout Manhattan, but particularly downtown. It was, you know, especially localized in part because there was so much opportunity there, since there were so many low, only four or five story warehouses. And so the kind of opportunity to expand to sort of skyscraper was huge. And so he was bringing these wood columns that were from these buildings, but that had in turn been masts on ships. And so there were all these different ways that they were, many of the artists were really scavenging for materials around the neighborhood to use. And then there's a more kind of maybe subtle way that Place gets caught in the work in terms of how Rosenquist is looking at the angles of a building and how the lines of a building connect and really fascinated by this wall of a parking lot and how it meets the sky. And he brings that into one of his amazing mashup paintings of different kind of advertising motifs that are related to his time as a billboard painter or Ellsworth Kelly who makes these really beautiful, sort of stunning abstractions that seem quite pure and actually totally divorced from any reference, but have this wonderful underlayer of reference in terms of how he was looking at the world. And so what seems like just a beautiful curve on a paper is actually the shadow, or is derived from, I shouldn't say it's actually, but it's derived from the shadow of light that fell on his sketch pad when he is riding a bus in Staten Island, or he's looking at a beer billboard painting on the wall on Quenty slip outside of Robert Indiana's apartment. And that informs the colors and shapes of another totally abstract work. So there's many ways in which there's these sort of very direct lifting from the environment. And then also you have the sense of the literary history and maritime history being directly quoted and referenced in some of the artist's work as well so that yeah there is a way in which the material the materials of the place are brought into the artist's work in very literal ways
0: you know i've looked at groups of artists all together and it's impossible to extricate them from the place And from each other in terms of why and how the work got made. And I know that artists are often grouped regionally together. And sometimes it's not useful. Like I think of David Wanarovic, like hating being called an East Village artist, you know, and being like not relating to that at all. I guess I'm just wondering, like, how common is it, especially from a more academic discipline, to look at artists this way?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that this particular approach in terms of looking at a pretty disparate group of artists, and particularly a group of artists who were they were working in many different media, some of them shared a gallerist, and some of them had exhibitions together, but they were not forming a movement, and they were not writing a manifesto, you know, they were not sort of trying to come together, and they were not even, I mean, it's funny, I, in my conversations with Jack Youngerman, I would ask, oh, what did you all talk about when you talked about art? He had this sort of wonderful answer that after some preliminary conversations in Paris, and of course they were going and looking at art together, and that would force them or would inspire them to talk about art. And they had this wonderful pilgrimage to go visit the little town where Van Gogh spent his last days and kind of pay tribute to his grave where he's buried there with his brother. But... Really, Youngerman said, after that, they weren't talking about art. They were talking about just everyday things or things they saw in the city. and And so it wasn't so much about, I wanted to write a history that really kind of brings in those more everyday moments as moments of really important influence and support and generosity and creative opportunity in a way that I think is not really celebrated or, or talked about very much because there was a way in which I think this very strange little place that was such a brief period of time in all of these artists' lives but did, was clearly so profound in terms of the work that they made there and the kind of ways that they were able to advance their thinking about what they wanted to do and what they wanted to make. It clearly had such an influence. And it's also a very... Not all of the artists are well-known, you know, and and some were more successful and, you know, I'm putting that in quotations in terms of finding an audience and having more shows, like, much more quickly than others. And Youngerman even talks about how none of them really knew how radical Lenore Tawny was at the time, working with her huge looms and making these incredibly ambitious woven forms that were still at the time you know, I wouldn't say like relegated, but there was still a kind of division between craft and fine art in this way that is completely, really makes no sense. And certainly so much of, Tawny was such an important figure in starting to break down some of those boundaries that really did not make any sense at all. And so, you know, I think that's also a part of what I was really interested in in looking at and bringing in those kind of stories as well. And I think, you know, the kind of nerdy historian in me really loved that this project led me pretty far afield from the typical territory that I might be in as an art historian to be, you know, reading zoning plans and Walt Whitman poems and Melville novels and all the different police blotters. I mean, that was sort of one of my favorite discoveries is that when you're researching a place, oftentimes, uh, you know, in a very specific place, one of the ways that you can find out the most, or you see that that place appear the most in the historical record is through police blotters. And so there were, you know, a lot of really interesting records around the drunken brawls that were happening, and sometimes worse, illegal gambling games, card games that were happening on Coente's slip in the 18th and 19th century. And so that was also sort of fascinating to think about how all of that creates this almost a kind of palimpsest of, of narrative of a story around a place and how can you sort of feel that in that that was being sort of channeled by the artists while they were there. You're
0: listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We've been speaking with Prudence Pfeiffer, author of The Slip, We'll return to that conversation in just a moment. But first, we have this week's book recommendation.
3: We have Andrew Leland on the line with us today. His new book is called The Country of the Blind, a memoir at the end of sight. And Andrew is joining us to give us a book recommendation. Andrew, what book are you going to recommend?
4: I'm going to recommend Daryl by Jackie S. And I have to say that I'm learning Braille. I've learned Braille and I've had a hell of a time finding a book to read in Braille because I read so slowly that certain novels, or I would say most novels, when I read them as slowly as I read Braille, they just sound wrong and they feel wrong. And it's like, I get bored or I just like, I can't deal with the reading a sentence at that pace, but somehow the pace of this novel and just the wildness of it, it's not meant to be read this slowly, but my experience of reading it, so slowly. I just, I'm obsessed with it, even though it's probably going to take me a year to finish it because I'm reading it at the pace that you would read like Wittgenstein, you know, in like a grad seminar, one sentence a, a week or something. <laughs> uh, not quite that slowly, but there's something about the, the narrative voice of it that is so wonderfully confusing and strange and beautiful and funny. I, I love this book.
3: Okay. I've heard a lot about Daryl. I've not read it myself, but... Will you give us a brief plot summary? Because I think listeners would not be able to guess what it's about.
4: I would never normally recommend a book that I haven't finished. But I'm, you know, probably only a third of the way through it. It's about a guy who I suppose you would call a cuck, where his, like, lifestyle is watching men have sex with his wife. And I, not having finished the book or really read anything about it, aside from people saying it was good... I don't know where we're headed, but there seems to be some kind of interesting, I haven't read a review of it or anything, but I feel like there's a way in which the like characters, sexuality seems to be metamorphosing a little bit. Mm -hmm. And he is, you know, Daryl is just this like very kind of on the one hand, bland and sad character, but also the text feels really superficial in a way. At first, where it's just, it's kind of like written in this bloggy, like sad, boring dude's blog about his like sexual exploits. But there's like a gradual deepening to it where you get deeper into Daryl's head and, and Daryl is confused and Daryl is interested in, in what it means to be trans. And I just, I feel like it's starting to orbit trans identity in a way that feels risky and exciting to me as a reader. And I just, I like have no idea where it's going and it just feels like electric. Like I, wherever it's going, something is going to explode in like a wild psychosexual way. And there's lots of drugs and sex, which is always something that I appreciate in fiction. But yeah, just like, I've never read a, a narrator like this before in my life and it's, I'm completely hooked. But the frustrating thing is it's like, I'm hooked on something that I can only consume at a truly like gerbil water feeder pace. And I'm just like that gerbil, like sucking furiously on that metal tube. I mean, if I wanted to, I could just read it in audio and get the whole thing at a normal pace. But there's something pleasurable too about this. Like, you know, it took me so long to find a book that would keep me going because Braille is frustrating and slow. You know, it's so frustrating to me to read at this pace, but this book has that kind of like, it's a page turner that You can savor each sentence as though it's poetry, even though it's also somehow like this slick feeling page turner at the same time. I've never read a book like it.
3: Okay, I mean, what else can we ask for in a recommendation? Andrew, will you tell us the title of the book again and the author?
4: The title is Daryl by Jackie S.
3: Great, thanks so much, Andrew. Thank you. We've been talking to Andrew Leland. His new book is called The Country of the Blind, A Memoir at the End of Sight.
0: You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Prudence Piper, author of The Slip. It's interesting to me because, yes, maybe some of these artists weren't that well-known, but Rosenquist, Kelly, I hadn't heard of Jack Youngerman before, but I, I think he is a celebrated artist. Robert Indiana, Agnes Martin, like they all are some of now the names in American art. And I think that the book made me reflect on, often it seems like just totally happenstance when very known people happen to have come together early in their lives. Like I always think about John Ashbery and Frank O'Hara being roommates in college and like being so blown away by that. But I we never then reflect, like maybe it was that mutual connection that then made them, Known later. It wasn't just a coincidence that these people who both became known later met early on. There must be synergy there. And I, I wondered if that's something you thought about when putting it together at the book.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And that's a little bit, you know, what I mean when I talk about this concept of collective solitude and this idea of living alone and not sort of having your space, but then also having the sense that there is a community around you. And I think that there are so many moments of quiet and not-so-quiet generosity, too. And one of the more beautiful relationships for me in the book that kind of came out was Lenartani and Agnes Martin. And whether or not they had a romantic relationship is debated, and there's no clear, you know, historical record on that. But certainly from reading their letters to each other, and from looking at the record around how Tawny bought a lot of, acquired, collected a lot of Agnes Martin's early works in a moment when Martin both really needed the money, but also was editing her works to the extent that she was really destroying so much that she was making, even as they were these incredible assemblages. And so in a way, Tawny kind of rescues these works from oblivion by collecting them and by caring for them, and some of them keeping them her whole life. And then also one of the really beautiful things in their letters to each other, which resonated with me a lot, especially writing this book, while I had a full-time job and a few kids in the process and that they were so protective of each other's time and they were so hopeful that each other had the space and the time and the place to work and so there's this you know this kind of constant refrain in these letters of like I hope you're able to be working and that to me that's a kind of form of love to to know how important it is for your fellow artists to have that ability to, you know, to sit down and work and that that's such a privilege to have that time and space.
0: Yeah. And that working is the thing that everyone wants to do and jobs and children and all those things get in the way. And knowing that, that kind of singular focus on the need to work, which can sometimes feel like about other things, about ego, about identity, you know, it's hard as much as I feel like the collective, support of all these people, it's also hard not to think, well, they were all Not to have the cynical side that says, well, a bunch of artists all living together is like a nightmare. And they, (laughs) the thing of like Ellsworth Kelly happening upon Barnett Newman's studio and kind of like looking in and then seeing what he was making and being like, oh, he stole my idea. And then the Rauschenberg and Kelly thing of like them feeling like one of them was stealing the other idea, Agnes Martin saying, She was willing to do whatever it takes to get known and she'd fuck someone over if she had to. That's the counter to this idea of like, oh, it's so beautiful, all of them together. The sense of, for whatever reason, maybe it wasn't money at the time because it wasn't possible to completely live off your work for a lot of these people, but there's something, this drive to individuate that seems to be so much a part of at least Western art
2: I think absolutely. And the fact that there was, you know, it's really, I think, important to acknowledge a very intense ambition on all of these artists' parts. I mean, that's really, that's also why it was so exciting to really have a sense that this was the place where they were all really finding themselves in terms of their creative direction. And you, it's very palpable, not only in the kind of, you know, journal entries and the historical documents we have, but also in the art that they were making, where you kind of see them sort of working that out in real time. But it's also interesting, I mean, the examples that you just gave, those are all relationships that these artists were having with people outside of the slip too, right? So very adjacent, very nearby, but in terms of Jasper Johns and Robert Rauschenberg, the artists on the slip were very clear that even though they were right around the corner, they were already more famous and they were already a different level of success and not a part of this other community, even though you know they were coming to studios and there was actually, I think, some great camaraderie there as well. So yes, absolutely. I mean, it's not, there are lots of instances of, that are not all about sort of <laughs> sweet, sweet cooperation. But I do think that there is that sense of of wanting to to help each other in a moment where it's very clear that they're they're all kind of having this moment of real discovery and development but also uncertainty and anxiety around what sort of the next steps are and i also really loved that it was a story that had far more gender parity <laughs> than some in terms of you know thinking about how many women artists were a part of the story and women dealers and women curators and women critics as well, and that there was a way in which, you know, it kind of thinking about the slip ended up bringing in a lot of characters that, again, have been, I think, more relegated to footnotes in in the kind of dominating narrative that we have around American modernism of the 20th century, but that reading Gene Swenson and Jill Johnson and Ann Wilson, an artist who was living on the slip briefly, but also was a really interesting writer and thinker. And just sort of seeing how Betty Parsons and Dorothy Miller and how these figures helped to support, sometimes failing to support, but, you know, trying to support and advocate and think through what these artists were doing as well. And that that's, to me, was also really exciting to kind of see to have all of these different voices coming in to a kind of art historical narrative that in my, like, long time of of studying art history, I was still discovering a lot of, you know, artists and voices that I had never really, you know, studied before, and that was really exciting for me.
0: Yeah, I I want to pick up on the the woman connection just in a second, because I don't want to shortchange Delphine Sarik and I, I really want to talk about her. But first I want to ask, uh, there wasn't a cohesive style between these artists, but I would love to get a sense kind of of what they were doing stylistically compared to what was like really hot at the moment, which was Abex when they all started, right? It was like Pollock was the greatest known American artist at the time.
2: Yeah, and I think, you know, there was, there was, of course, great excitement at this kind of energy and new kind of world stage moment that American abstraction had come to, but it did not feel like something that these artists could particularly relate to. Although Agnes Martin did have, in some ways, more of a close relationship to abstract expressionism and really admired Rothko and Newman and, and when, you know, Betty Parsons was still also representing those artists, she helped put Martin in touch with Newman in particular, and they became very close friends. And, you know, Newman would help hang her shows and take her to parties and introduce her to people. And so that was a really important relationship for her. You know, I think what's interesting also about this group of artists is that even as Rosenquist and Indiana end up becoming some of the kind of founders, if you will, of pop art as we've come to understand it and as a movement and as one of the kind of responses to abstract expressionism. All of their work is pretty hard to categorize very neatly. And, you know, even Indiana, he's making making abstract work and he's making these amazing sculptures that are based on ancient Greek Herm sculptures, but with these kind of interesting modern and nautical takes and also sometimes more sexualized takes, you know, and again, quoting from Whitman and Melville and Hart Crane on them. And so, you know, there's ways in which I think, yeah, all of them were were just making such different kinds of work than what the kind of dominant narrative of American abstraction was, even when they were Working abstractly, and it's interesting because at the same time, you know Kelly when Kelly and Youngerman were in Paris and they were reading you know the famous nineteen forty seven life story on Pollock, like is he the greatest living artist and but they weren't fully relating to that, and then it wasn't until Kelly sees an article or a review on an ad Reinhardt show in art news, so more another artist who's very difficult to categorize, even though he's of the generation of the abstract expressionists, that he felt like, oh, there might be a place for me in New York. There might be a way in which the kind of painting that I'm thinking about that is more kind of pre-planned and, and has to do with what you see in the environment and kind of making a making an idea of that versus this kind of action, existential battleground, you know, that was that was the kind of clichéd response or way of thinking through abstract expressionism. So yeah, and you know even though we can say that Kelly in many ways, his form and Martin and Agnes Martin their approach to abstraction ended up being incredibly influential for artists who came after them and even for, you know, movements as we as we have, you know, defined them in art history such as minimalism and but I think I guess I'm trying to make slightly make messy some of these categories and these neat transitions that happen, you know, that supposedly happen. And partly to say that, yes, there's an anxiety of influence and there is a way that artists are constantly looking to each other to push themselves and to come up with new strategies for composition. But there's also a way in which there are geographic and, you know, environmental factors, too, that are coming in to determine what size of work they're making and with what materials and with what colors and all of those kind of factors as well. It struck me that that
0: maybe that idea, you know, that things just kind of come in is at odds with a more lofty image of art as being that we don't take in the obvious factors because we don't like to think of art being happenstance and being incidental. Even though that's what's amazing about it is that you can pick up whatever's around and it's kind of integral to the whole history of art, but that especially in America, it's like a dirty idea to think that someone would just make a painting because that's what they had around, not because they weren't conceptualizing a whole way of being or way
2: of making. Yeah, I think that's, that's totally, it's totally true. And I think that's also a part of when an artist is, I think, in the earlier stages of their career too, or of thinking about what it is they want to do, it's obviously incredibly anxiety inducing and scary, but there's also a lot of freedom because you're just trying a lot of different things. Um, And I think, you know, that's also where, you know, sometimes some of the anxiety too about you're really excited about something, and then you notice, oh, wait, someone else is already doing something like that, too. And, you know, what does that mean for... But, you know, you also have, you know, something like, you know, Indiana, ultimately, you know, even as for a moment, he's, you know, painting these kind of hard-edged abstractions, very influenced by Ellsworth Kelly, who was his lover for a time briefly on the slip. But then, you know, he moves purposely into a very different idiom, But he also talks about how he never understood color until he sort of talked with Kelly and saw Kelly's work. And that sort of opened his eyes to a whole other literal register of colors, but also just way of of thinking about how colors can interact in a composition, too. It is fascinating to think of some of these artists like Kelly and Martin and even Youngerman, to a certain extent, whose work is often, you know, talked about in such sort of pure terms outside of any kind of environmental factors or questions around kind of material, the material environment in which they were made. Just so we don't forget about
0: Delphine. So Jack Youngerman's wife was Delphine Sarig, who would seem almost like incidental to the story, except that her father ended up being the head of museums in France because he was given that position as the minister of culture. They were They were collectors of a lot of the artists. So even though she wasn't an artist, a visual artist in the same way, she was a part of these people's survival as artists. And she goes on to have such an amazing career and um, be so important as an actress. How do you feel like she fit into the group or the influence that they had on her or vice versa?
2: Her story was one of my favorite to kind of uncover because I didn't know very much about her and her work before embarking on this project and she was such an astonishing force um, from helping to put on the first production to kind of stake the money to put on the first production of Samuel Beckett's Waiting for Godot in Paris just sort of I don't think she was even 20 yet. I think she was, you know, 18 at the times so of just having this belief in art, kind of the importance of... And she used an inheritance, you know, small inheritance from her aunt. And Youngerman was very funny about it because he's like, you know, at the time, we had absolutely no money, and that would have, you know, gone a, a long way. But he's like, I totally got it. And, you know, that was just where what she always was going to kind of put first. And I also really found quite moving and really related to when she comes, moves to Coente Slip, she writes a lot of letters back home to her parents in Beirut and Paris. And thanks to the generosity of Jack and then his son, Duncan, I was able to read these letters and they are, I mean, they're incredible and they have wonderful, vivid details, which I was able to bring some of them into the book, which was so great. And a lot of them are really about waiting. (laughs) They're about having a young child and the time it takes to kind of push them around in a stroller and but also going to auditions and not getting parts or waiting to see if for a callback or you get a part. But then the production, you know, it's off, off, off Broadway and the production closes after one night or it never even gets off its feet or you finally do get a part and it's in Boston in a theater and you have to leave your young son behind for two weeks and how to juggle that whole plan. And so for me, it was very real around kind of the struggles and the joys and the challenges of motherhood and trying to establish a career. And also, you know, I think she was, she loved being around artists. She loved the slip. She talks about, you know, it's, it's she wouldn't want to be anywhere else, but I think it was a bit of a rough place to raise a child. And she really loved being able to be in these conversations with other artists. She and Ellsworth Kelly were particularly close. But she also writes about how it's so hard because when the artists are kind of working through something that they want to make, there's a physical evidence of that. But for her profession, when she's going, it's sort of all intangible until you actually like have a part or you're doing this thing. And so... I think that there was a frustration for her, too, that she wasn't sort of able to be advancing her career and what she knew she really wanted to be doing in the same way that her friends and the community around her were. But then she has this incredible moment where she ends up starring in Paul My Daisy, the um, Jack Kerouac and Allen Ginsberg, you know, famous beat classic film that's made by Alfred Leslie and Robert Frank. And you know, starring with a cast of beat poets and artists, a scene that she was not a part of at all. And in fact, sort of, she had some frustrations during the filming of it. But it's just this extraordinary moment that you have this young actress coming over from Paris and being one of the main characters in in what becomes such a, a cult classic. And then very shortly thereafter, Alain Renee, the great French film director, is visiting her on the slip, and she just has this, you know, incredible connection with him, and ends up moving back to Paris shortly thereafter, and starring in Last Year at Marienbad, and the rest, sort of, as they say, is history. But one of the things that, you know, it's been the subject of several exhibitions in Europe recently, and I believe one even traveled to the states, but another revelation for me, and it's after her time at the Slip, although I think the kind of seed of it was already there. But she goes on to be this incredible activist for women's rights. And, you know, even as a filmmaker, wanting to really only or attempting to really work mainly with female filmmakers and actors in projects and take up subjects that were more difficult. And it's really extraordinary. And and I think very kind of prescient to what very recently in terms of Me Too movement and a lot of kind of reform and radical rethinking about the Hollywood machine that has happened here in the States even. So yeah, she's a really, really fascinating, fascinating figure. Okay. Well, so I should ask,
0: is there a Coenti slip right now in New York or all over the world? I mean, do you feel like this is a model that's being replicated currently? It's a great
2: question and I think no, my immediate answer is no, because I do think that Quenti Slip was such a unique place in terms of its kind of geographic sighting and just this, you know, particular moment when these artists, you know, came together for this very, very short period of time in this very particular era of New York City development. But that said, I really I didn't want the book to feel nostalgic and I didn't want, you know, I do want to kind of argue for, if not like a different way of thinking about history, a way of maybe teasing out some models for community or for how we think about place and the use of place. And I think today there are a lot of artists that are working very creatively around finding spaces, making spaces work and finding you know, sometimes very contingent spaces in which to either make their work or to display their work. And certainly, you know, one of the things that's fascinating to me right now in this very current moment in Manhattan is we have sort of two things going on, you know, with Rent stabilization with the vote just increasing rent. And so we are that much farther from, you know, having affordable housing for millions of people in the city, which makes it you know, that much more difficult to imagine young, ambitious artists with not a lot of money being able to find spaces, affordable spaces to live But you also have a moment when commercial real estate is in a kind of crux (laughs) moment, as, you know, many recent articles and, you know, most recently the cover story of New York Magazine talk about. And, you know, I do wonder, is there hopefully maybe some opportunity there, too, in terms of the amount of commercial real estate that is you know potentially available with these office buildings that are not being used currently and and that maybe there could be you know could be a a creative solution that does involve artists as well
0: That's so cool yeah so instead of being by the water
2: it's going to be like and a big skyscraper in Midtown, but. <laughs> right. Maybe with views of the water. I mean, I think, you know, there's Indiana has that really great, amazing quote at the very end of his life where someone asks him, you know, what would it take to bring you back to New York? And he says, you know, a studio on the water for $35 a month, which is what he had in, you know, 1957. But it's hard to imagine the equivalent, that equivalent being available today.
0: <laughs> yes. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Prudence, for
2: speaking with me. Thank you so much for having me and for your careful read of the book.
0: That was Prudence Pfeiffer. Her new book is called The Slip, The New York City Street That Changed American Art Forever. Thanks for listening to the LARP Radio Hour. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts to help us get the word out. And we'd love to hear from you. The producers at the LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is Matea Baim. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogen Teasley Vlad.